Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Stephen Hayward. He is at Berkeley in the law school and at the Institute of Governmental Studies. His books, many books, include the two-volume Age of Reagan and Patriotism is Not Enough, Harry Jaffa, Walter Burns, and the Arguments that Redefined American Conservatism. He has a new book out, and it is called M. Stanton Evans, Conservative, Wit, Apostle of Freedom, our topic today. Welcome, Stephen. Well, thanks, Mark. It's really fun to join you. All right. You know, uh, first a biographical, autobiographical question. How did you end up as an intern for this fellow named Stanton Evans? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I was always a conservative, and I was a conservative on my college paper and kind of interested maybe in journalism when I got out of college. That, that's way back now in 1980 because I'm getting old. Uh, and and I was, I'd read National Review since my freshman year in high school, which just tells you what a nerd I was. Uh, and there's a little ad uh, at the back in the classified ads of National Review saying, oh, there's this National Journalism Center. They have internships, 12 weeks in Washington, pays $100 a week, which was almost real money then. Um, and, uh, and then I was familiar with Stan, as everybody called him Stan, right? Uh, because I've been reading him for years, and I actually used to hear his radio commentaries now and then. And I thought, wow, what a great chance this would be. So I applied and got accepted, and I arrived in Washington in January of 1981, about a week ahead of Ronald Reagan. Hmm. Was it, you know, let me ask about that. Uh, was it exciting in Washington, D.C. to come in with, I mean, what a time to arrive yeah. in, in inside, inside the Beltway. Exciting? Interesting? Oh, hugely exciting. You, know, you were there in the beginning of the Reagan Revolution, and you know, we look back on certain disappointments or criticisms now, but, you know, at the time it was unimaginable, right, that Ronald Reagan could be elected president. Uh, and, you know, and, and lately, I mean, uh, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure how old you are, Mark. I think you're not quite as old as me, but um, I've been telling some younger people today who are disgusted and depressed about our woke regime that we currently live in about, uh, and, and, you know, Trump or Ron DeSantis or, you know, who, who can reverse all this and, and I try to convey to them that to come of age in the late 1970s, when liberalism was falling apart, uh, when it was clear that the conservative intellectual movement had, was building a critical mass, something was about to change. Along comes Ronald Reagan with those smashing landslides, you know, first in 80 and then 84. We felt like we had the wind at our back. And I, I think in a lot of ways we did. Um, so it was a much happier time to be a young conservative, uh, starting out and making your way up in the world. And and then, you know, for me, what, what luck to fall in with Stan Evans. And I had no idea he was going to be such a funny, relaxed, casual guy, but also very serious about teaching the craft of writing and journalism. Let, let me ask, actually, uh, what did he hope to accomplish with this journalism center in D.C.? Uh, 
Yeah, so I think, um, uh, again, if you go back to the late 60s, early 70s, there weren't very many conservative journalists, even opinion journalists. Now there are a dime a dozen, and we have all these online outlets. But back then, there weren't many conservative publications. Uh, you, you could, uh, conservative journalists could meet in a phone booth. And he thought, you know, let's try and train some journalists. He didn't necessarily think they had to be conservative. He wanted journalists who understood that you, you want to report the facts and you want to be objective about the facts. Now, you can have a bias or a point of view, uh, but he, he wanted to ground journalism in solid reporting because, of course, he'd done an awful lot of that. And so he really did teach the fundamentals. Uh, but along the way, between guest speakers like you know, Robert Novak and later on Fred Barnes, he'd also give these seminars uh, on Fridays, usually, uh, on basic economics because, of course, that had been a passion and field of his. He did a, a year of graduate study with the famous Ludwig von Mises back in the 50s. Uh, and so there he, he would critique the way economics was covered in, you know, the New York Times or the Washington Post and point out how bad it was. Not, not ideologically bad necessarily, but just weak on the facts and having a superficial or wrongheaded understanding of things like inflation and trade deficits and taxes. And so you got, uh, now I was pretty economically literate, but I think a lot of um, students who came through there, uh, a lot of interns who came through there, this might have been their first exposure to sensible economics. Hmm. When we get to Evans and sort of the necessity of this book, you note that he isn't as well remembered as a lot of other conservatives going back to that, right. to that time. Why, why is that? Yeah, you know, it, it, I think the, the final cause of that, and he only died, what, six, seven years ago. He hasn't been gone that long. And I find that people, uh, especially younger people, but even older people are like, oh, yeah, I guess I kind of remember that guy a little bit. Uh, and I think the real reason is he was personally a very modest uh, person. It was his character. He, he never uh, blew his own horn. Um, he was never a self-promoter. Uh, uh, and it, unlike a lot of people where, look, I mean, this business, we're all in, you know, you and I and everybody else, were, we're all in the sort of writing business and a certain amount of self-promotion is sadly necessary. Oh, yeah. He never did a lot of that. And, uh, you know, but everyone will tell you, you know, William F. Buckley would have told you this if we had him to ask him and, other people who knew Stan were still around, like Dan Oliver or Neil Freeman. If Stan was the guy you always wanted to say the last word in a meeting on an important subject. And often the person that a group of leading conservatives would turn to to write a key statement, like the Sharon Statement. that you know He wrote the Sharon Statement that launched Young Americans for Freedom in what, 1960, I think, or 61. And he, ne he never boasted about that. And if you asked him, he'd say, well, I was just expressing, you know, the common sense of the matter, you know, traditional conservative themes, and I just pulled it together in, you know, a page and a half. And so, you know, very modest, didn't ever boast about the authorship of that or other things that he was in the middle of. Um, and so that's it. It's, uh, you know, he, there was never, uh, even though his friends and fans and as many interns and protégés are devoted to the guy, uh, he, he never had a, uh, cult's not quite the right word, but he never had the, uh, uh, you know, sort of the large personality following of somebody like, uh, Buckley, or, or even George Will, for example. Yeah, yeah. Like Buckley, he ended up at Yale. But before getting to that, uh, just give us the, the salient facts about his, his upbringing, his childhood, his adolescence. Yeah, well, he was born in Texas, in uh, uh, Kingsburg, I think, little town. And, and then his father was a, uh, a, an English professor of some notoriety. H.L. Uh, Mencken actually quoted his father approvingly in I think the American language, that big two-volume thing that Mencken did. Anyway, and then his father taught at the University of the South in Sewanee and then later the University of Tennessee. So 
Stan moved around a little bit as a kid, uh, but then the most interesting turn was in World War II, his father, and for reasons I couldn't quite figure out how his dad made the leap, I, I couldn't find any documentation on this and no one seems to know, but his father ended up joining the Manhattan Project uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, as part of internal security review. And he, he got to, he got to uh, Los Alamos and some of the sites where the, uh, you know, the actual bomb research and construction was going on, where, among other people, he met Klaus Fuchs, later one of the Rosenberg uh, traders who <laughs> yeah. gave our secrets. And, and his father got very alarmed as late as the closing months and, and certainly the years after World War II that we hadn't taken security very seriously. Um, and so his father, who was very conservative, um, he later uh, started writing for the John Birch Society in the 50s. Um, so his father was one of the early persons, uh, uh, it, it's wrong to say, you know, McCarthy, I don't know, that. we'll come back to that point about Stan and, and Joe McCarthy in a bit. But, you know, his father was one of the persons who took seriously that we've been very lax on security, very lax on Soviet penetration in our government, and, you know, wrote a lot of articles and books about it. It had to be taken very seriously because his father was a formidable thinker and writer. And so you see where Stan got it from, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He goes to Yale and uh, his experience at Yale really bore out Buckley's book, God and Man at Yale. Was that a strong yeah. basis for their, for their subsequent friendship? Uh, yeah, it was. So, so uh, Stan started at Yale the year after Buckley had graduated and then Buckley right away published you know, his famous first book, God and Man at Yale. And Buckley turned up a lot. So Stan met him when I think he was just a freshman or sophomore at Yale. And so they became acquainted then. And Stan kind of carried on. I mean, he worked at the, the Yale Daily News. He started the Party of the Right, which was the conservative faction inside the Yale Political Union, which still exists today, I think. Uh, and, you know, they started, you know, agitating. Um, it was around that time that Stan became acquainted with the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. It was then known by its original name, the Intercollegiate Society of Individualists. Yes, yes. A little bit more, right, and, you know, it became a little more, um, we say, fusionist. Uh, we can come back to that maybe um, uh, shortly thereafter. But so Stan got involved with the early student organization, and, um, you know, it was he, so he made a mark there at Yale. He was known as the successor of Buckley in a lot of ways. He, he comes across Frank Chodorov. Uh, who, who was Frank yeah. Chodorow, and what did he mean to Evans? Yeah, so the, the, there's a forgotten figure who deserves to be unforgotten. Um, I had read Chodorow, actually, I think when I was working for Stan, I did not realize that, that Stan had known him so well. But Chodorow was a you know, prominent libertarian thinker in the 30s and 40s, uh, edited the Freeman for a while. I think he edited the Freeman. Uh, yes, he did. Uh, and at the Foundation for Economic Education, one of the oldest of the sort of conservative or libertarian research groups. Uh, and uh, he hired Stan shortly after Stan graduated from Yale in 1955. Uh, and Stan began as, you know, writer and editor at the Freeman. And Chodorov was an interesting thinker. Uh, boy, you can read some of his old essays that uh, from like, say, 1950-51, that read very current with our problems with the college campuses today, except our problems today are 10 times worse than they were when, when he was writing. But, you know, he, he had the essence of what's wrong with radicalism uh, Chodorov did on campus um, and wrote some very good essays about it that you can still find online here and there. Um, and so I, I decided to read into Chodorov a bit since I came across Stan referring to how important he'd been to his thinking and his career. And that's when I realized, oh, my goodness, um, 
I hadn't even read Chodorov fully enough. And so some, you know, old time libertarians remember the guy or, or, you know, know his work, but otherwise he's now a completely forgotten figure, which I think is unfortunate. Um, so yeah, I, I take a digression in the book of, I don't know, six or seven pages talking around Chodorov, um, because an interesting guy, um, but above all he taught, oh, sorry. You know, it sounds Stephen like, like one of the purposes of your book is a little bit of recovery here. Well, let's get, let's get the memory uh, the fuller memory of of the of this mid-century conservative movement out there, and and I will say that I mean it's written very very well. It's a very smooth narrative. Except to to, to the listeners out there, if you have if you have your seventeen year old uh, conservative kids uh, when they go to college, have them take along a copy of Hayward's uh, uh, bio of, of Stanton Evans, along with Witness and uh, God and Man at Yale and, and a few other choice texts, right. but. The yeah, the full story of some of these people when they were when they were young, maybe before they were they were famous even. I mean, Evans is making his career in the 1950s. The Cold War is really going on. You talked about his father, uh, who 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 wanted who was a very early Cold Warrior. What kind of Cold Warrior was was Evans in the 1950s as a young journalist? Yeah, no, that's a very interesting point. Uh, let me just say first, by the way, though, that uh, the first thing you said. I think it's really important that we keep alive the memory of some of our heroes and teachers. Uh, and, and, and here I want to give a shout out to Neil Freeman, you know, longtime fixture at National Review. He's the person who came to me and said, I think you should write a biography of Stan because you knew him and so forth. And, and he helped get me a research grant to, um, you know, I had to go to some archives and other things and make it possible. Um, so I'm really grateful to Neil and, uh, and by the way, Neil has sponsored several other biographies or gotten people. I, I think there's a new one out or coming of Wilmore Kendall, and there's a few others. Uh, there's been a book of James Burnham, for example. So I think it's really important that we make this a project. Um, and then, yeah, the other thing you mentioned is, um, you know, I'm fascinated with what I call origin stories. Uh, you know, how do people, we're, we're familiar with people in their maturity. But how they get to that point is often, I think, a fascinating story. So now Stan, uh, in the 50s, Here's the interesting thing about Stan, especially in the context of the last few years, the last decade, and especially with the reconsideration on foreign policy that you might say the Trumpian right has been bringing us through. Uh, he was always a strong anti-communist. Uh, he, he was always beneath the surface. Here and there, you could tell that he had sympathies with Robert Taft and was wary of foreign interventions and getting into foreign wars. Uh, but he was never an isolationist or, or a non-interventionist the way some libertarians are. Uh, he understood that in the real world, uh, you know, we needed to uh, have military alliances. We needed to have a big military. We needed to stand up to the Soviet Union. Uh, but along the way, there's some really curious places where Stan departed from the conventional conservative wisdom. And one of them is in late 50s and early 60s, he thought that the Soviet Union, that we were buying the Soviet Union's claims for their military and technical prowess. Uh, so quite beyond John F. Kennedy hyping the missile gap that didn't exist. And he, he said that you know, we're making the Soviet Union seem more powerful than they are. And that's warping American politics and American policymaking. Quite an interesting perception of things. Uh, he, uh, he was very skeptical of their space program, sometimes I think getting ahead of the evidence, but sometimes not. Um, and, you know, about Vietnam, from the very beginning, it's just, you know, standing up the communists is fine, but we are blowing this war. Uh, it, it's totally unserious. Uh, it, it's proceeding on all kinds of crazy premises, whereas, you know, most conservatives were like, 
you know, even if it was Johnson's war, we supported the effort because, you know, we're fighting the communists and, and, and stand a very nuanced position about that. And so once the Cold War was over, by the time you get up to the 1990s, uh, and then especially after 9-11, uh, he supported the Iraq war, but he did not support, uh, it was pretty clear, he's kind of retired by then or about to, but quite clear that he did not support or had no enthusiasm for nation building these protracted uh, occupations that we were getting into in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so in that respect, he prefigured by at least a decade uh, some of the second thoughts about uh, America's foreign uh, involvement uh, in the way that uh, Trump and some of his followers brought up. Yeah, yeah. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You mentioned JFK. Uh, you have a long, uh, several pages on, on Stanton <laughs> and, and JFK. The JFK of the 1950s, who actually was a, a pretty strong Cold Warrior, right? Yeah. And then, and yeah. then the JFK of the 60s and the, the presidency, the, the missile gap uh, issue. What, what, what ultimately did Evans think of JFK? Yeah, I mean, he, uh, uh, I think he thought he was a lightweight which I think is largely true. He thought of most of his appointments to senior positions were not very good. And, you know, he wrote a lot of articles going through the backgrounds of people like Mac Bundy and, oh, I forgot some of the names now because I wrote the book now a year and a half ago. But the, You, you um, have a good little exchange with Sergeant Shriver in there. With, uh, oh, right. With, with, uh, with Evans that, that I thought was right on target. Um, <laughs> but, but, yeah, but JFK, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, he thought he was a lightweight and, and giving in to the left. And, uh, and despite what he might say on the surface, he didn't think much of the guy um, and did not expect much from him. So, uh, But I think equal to that, and something that, boy, we really forget now is the 64 election. You know, you had a lot of conservatives, including even a few at National Review, which you otherwise thought of was the Goldwater cheering section, who thought that Johnson was preferable to Goldwater. And you had people saying, well, he's from Texas. He's actually a conservative Democrat. And Stan wrote a long pamphlet saying, this is all nonsense. Uh, do not be fooled by any of his record in the past. Just look at what he says he wants to do in the Great Society speech that he gave in, what, I think, March of 64, and take that seriously. And boy, did he ever have that nailed, right? <laughs> so he really didn't buy any of the people. I, I think Wilmore Kendall might have been one of them who said, or maybe James Burnham, I forget which one of them said, Johnson's probably preferable, he's fine, he's okay. And, yeah. you know, so <laughs> anyway, how, it... Uh, how did Evans take that, that crushing 64 defeat? I mean, he, he actually expected it to happen, didn't he? Uh, yeah, I don't think he thought it was going to be as bad as it was. I mean, if you read his column, I'll say, by the way, that uh, one of the I, I knew that he'd been editor of the Indianapolis News for over a decade, but um, it was before my time. And uh, I had never gone back to read any of that journalism. But I got I spent weeks going through a lot of it's online, but going through uh, his unsigned editorials, which were easy to spot and his biweekly column in the Indianapolis News. And Boy, that was a lot of fun. And that's where you really picked up some of these subtleties about him. And, you know, he was optimistic up to the end that Goldwater, 
didn't think it might be an out of the blue upset, but he thought Goldwater would run more strongly than he did. And it's pretty clear, and he even said a couple of times, he was pretty discouraged in the weeks afterwards. But it didn't take him long to dust himself off and, and start writing, saying, well, we need to keep going and, and prepare for down the road. Uh, we may be beaten down now. And, you know, it's after that, as uh, you and many listeners will know, the Philadelphia Society has started to try and notch up the organization of conservative intellectuals and writers. Um, and he was a part of that at the beginning. Uh, and the American Conservative Union, which had been around in embryonic form, pulled itself together and became a significant organization. He was in the middle of that and then was later its chairman in the late 60s uh, and during the Nixon years. Uh, so he, he dusted himself off and said, charge ahead and, and started saying, you know, we, we, you know, we may have lost this one, might have lost it badly, but we're still in this fight and don't be discouraged. Yeah. You, you mentioned the Sharon statement. T tell our listeners, what was the Sharon statement? Everyone's heard of the Port Huron statement. Uh, the Sharon right. statement, not as well known. What, what was that? First, first of all, it was, it was at Buckley's, that was the gathering at, at Buckley's house, right? Right. Sure. Yeah. So how that happened? Right. There's some good histories of this, which you know I did borrow from, of course. Um, uh, what happened was, is you know the Goldwater Goldwater made a big splash at the 1960 Republican convention, and it was kind of a youth movement. It was the younger people uh, who were ex excited for him, and it was at the convention, I believe, or maybe the day after, a bunch of people, including Bill Buckley, Marvin Liebman, a few other folks that were friends of his, says, you know, we ought to get together some of these youth leaders. Uh, you know, college Republicans and young, and start an organization and trying to organize this on the campuses and out in the world. So they said, let's have a meeting in my house, you know, the it, Buckley's mansion there in um, Greenwich, I guess. Uh, and so they came and got there, came and went for a weekend, discussed what they want to do and asked Stan to write a statement of principles. And that was the Sharon statement, which I think is, I think it's only 350 words or maybe 500 words. It's, you know, page and a half. And, you know, it's, we believe in God, we believe in a strong defense, we believe in a free economy, we're against socialism, sort of the main bullet points, uh, all stated very crisply. And I would do like to point out that the Port Huron statement two years later, I think it was 62, wasn't it, or 63? Yeah, I think 62, um, yeah. Yeah, well, you're probably familiar with it. It's 5,000 words long, yeah. 10 times longer, <laughs> yeah. repetitive, self-referential, it's completely ridiculous. And Tom Hayden uh, kind had of a lot to say. Yeah, he sure did. And, I, you know, I do show the both of them students sometimes, and even the liberal students will say, God, what a god-awful mess this Port Huron statement is. And, you know, this, this, the Sharon statement, this is pretty crisp and clear. I can understand it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's fun. Um, the, uh, as Vietnam cranks up, what, what did Stanton, did, did he have mixed feelings about the war early? You, you you suggested a minute ago. Yeah, yeah, he did. I mean, he, um, you know, he thought. Uh, uh, well, he, he understood something. I think was came a lot clearer to a lot more people later. And I wrote about this in one of my first Reagan books. Is that it was being run as a liberal managerial exercise and not as an actual war. Uh, and so he thought, uh, you know, he, he thought war is a pretty simple matter. You're either in it to win it and fight it seriously and defeat the enemy on their own ground, or you shouldn't do it. This halfway measure with, you know, calibrated signals and negotiate and, and all the stuff, the way the liberals ran it, he thought was uh, counterproductive, unlikely to succeed, which ended up being correct and, you know, a waste of money. Um, and he was never, 
I, I mean, he made that criticism a number of times. He was never, though, uh, he, he never wanted to lend any rhetorical support or any political aid to the anti-war movement of the left. So he's always careful about how he put those criticisms. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you, you say that Richard Nixon, when Nixon comes in, he, quote, you, these are your words, he presented a dilemma for conservatives yeah. at the time. Uh, how so? Yeah, so uh, so uh, here, roll back the tape to the late 50s. Um, Stan, in the late 50s, became the managing editor of Human Events, uh, you know, very important you know, weekly conservative newspaper, really, from yep. the 60s through into the, really up into the 90s. Reagan still loved around it. now online. Reagan, Reagan loved, loved it. it. it was, that's right, part of his regular reading. I subscribed to it in high school again because I was a crazy right-wing kid. Um, and it was, and reading some of those old issues from the late 50s, it was a much smaller publication. It was only about eight pages long then. Uh, you could tell that they, they, they were okay with Eisenhower. They thought he could be more robust in pushing back against the New Deal and a little stronger against the communists. But they thought he did a decent job, but they were very suspicious of Nixon. You could see that even then. And that was mostly Stan. And I'm not quite sure what his instincts were that led him to that. Um, but he was not excited about Nixon in 1960 uh, and was completely unexcited about him coming back in 1968. He thought he wasn't a conservative and, and could not be reliably conservative, but there was a big split on the right about that. Um, uh, you know, William F. Buckley and an awful lot of other conservatives thought Nixon will do. He's conservative enough. He can win. Uh, and Stan thought, no, uh, Stan really hoped for Ronald Reagan to run uh, seriously in 1968, which Reagan almost did. I mean, he kind of ran a little bit, but not but he didn't make a full challenge for the nomination the way Stan wanted. Um, so, you know, I think he voted for Nixon. I don't, I never came across whether he actually did or not, uh, but he had no enthusiasm for him um, and was very critical of Nixon from the beginning in his, uh, in his writing. You go back to an interesting moment that you see as something of a, a real turning point for a lot of conservatives. It was when, when Nixon resigns, Gerald Ford comes in, and Agnew's, you know, Spiro Agnew is out, obviously, and yeah. Gerald Ford had to select a vice president, and his selection, Nelson Rockefeller, shocked Evans. Was this a key moment, a key clarification for some conservative Republicans? You know, I think it probably was. I, you know, that's a, a question that I didn't explore wider in the way that your, your question, I think, uh, sensibly suggests. Uh, because, right, I mean, he was the devil figure in 64 against uh, Goldwater. Uh, he made all the wild charges about Goldwater being an extremist and giving aid and comfort to the Democrats and the liberals. And, you know, he's been a liberal Republican governor. And you, you thought that we'd finally put the guy away, Right. Uh, and we weren't going to hear from him again. He'd been routed at least by Goldwater and then marginalized by Nixon. And so suddenly Ford rehabilitates him and puts him a heartbeat away from the presidency. And so yeah, people were aghast. Uh, I mean, if Goldwater had picked just some, uh, I mean, I don't know, find some Republican governor from the time whose name we've forgotten, like what John Rhodes, wasn't he governor of Ohio, I think, or something like that. Pick somebody, or, you know, some people wanted Ronald Reagan to be picked to be uh, vice president. I don't think Reagan wanted it, but... Um, uh, but that would have thrilled conservatives. And I think Ford, as people thought, I think they thought about Reagan, thought, oh, too, too controversial, too hard to get confirmed in Congress. Um, and so picking Rockefeller in, and of course, you know, Ford had to dump Rockefeller from the ticket um, to save his own skin to get renominated. Yeah. Well, now, 
in the next four years, we have, we have the rise of, of Ronald Reagan. What role did Evans play in that? Yeah. So, well, of course, a lot of people were involved in that whole effort. You know, Reagan's campaign is one of the more, I say, his that period between 76 and 80, and you know, Craig Shirley's written well about this, is a remarkable story of someone preparing not just to run again, but preparing to govern in a serious way once elected, more so than I think any other incoming president in modern history. And so they'll always issue task forces. Uh, Stan was not directly involved in a lot of them, mostly for geographical reasons. You know, he's in Washington and Reagan's out in California. They talk now and then on the phone um, a few times, um, and uh, and Stan was then running. He moved to Washington by mid seventies. He was then running um, the American Conservative Union had this sort of affiliated think tank they called the Education Research Institute. And Stan, uh, at the same time that you had places like the Heritage Foundation founded and growing, and AEI starting to grow, they're putting out a lot of policy studies. Uh, you know, on taxes, on foreign policy, on regulation, uh, and all those were going to Reagan and his task forces. Uh, and so, you know, he was part of the people, uh, a part of the cadre of people, quite a lot of people who were generating a serious governing agenda and a serious background analysis of what needed to be changed. Now, Reagan is in the White House, and you quote uh, something about Evans in 1982, warning people of a, quote, Bush rebellion inside yeah. the White House. What is going on there? Yes. So uh, Stan was very dismayed. Uh, one thing he was involved with, also back to the previous question that connects to this one, is, you know, in 1979, but certainly middle 1980 and after the election, he was very seriously involved behind the scenes with the sleeve rolled up in ways that you didn't read about in the paper ever in trying to generate a personnel appointments for the Reagan administration. You know, he wanted solid conservatives appointed to key positions. And part of the problem here is, and uh, I think Stan would grant this if you asked him, uh, Reagan was always, uh, he was this way as governor of California. He always understood that you had two wings of the Republican Party still. Uh, and that to be a successful executive, you have to have both of them represented. Um, he had liberal Republicans in his administration in Sacramento. And, you know, I point out in my, you know, my second volume, my Reagan book, is that when Reagan takes office, there are still, by my count, 16 Republican senators who are moderate to liberal. You know, people like Mac Mathias and Mark Hatfield and Lowell Weicker. Um, you know, to, today it's what Susan Collins and Murkowski is kind of it. But so, you know, you have a, you, and then not to mention the Bushes and, and so forth. So you know, Reagan had to deal with those people. He did need to include them in his administration. Um, and there was always lots of infighting reported in the media, although I think they overstated that. Um, but you know, Stan understood that uh, there was an undertow from the conventional Republicans, also well represented on Capitol Hill by people like Bob Dole, who never liked the tax cuts uh, that Reagan put through, for example. Um, and, and that's what that was about, is uh, you know, Reagan's going to lose control of his administration to the liberals. Uh, and so he suspected Chief of Staff James Baker, as well as the Vice President, Richard Darman, of course, everybody hated. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, a couple of times, uh, and I have stories in the book, a couple of times, and, and Reagan paid attention to these criticisms. Uh, you know, he would note them in his diary. Uh, and, you know, his conservatives like Ed Meese and other people would say, you know, we need to keep the lines of communication open. So in 82 and a couple other times, Stan would be invited down to the White House along with some other leading conservatives, and Reagan would try and smooth things over. And in a couple of those, 
I've heard different accounts, and I forget which one I used, but a couple of those, uh, uh, Stan exchanged some pretty sharp words with James Baker, because uh, Stan was kind of fearless that way. Um, he, he had exchanged words with Henry Kissinger back in the Nixon years in a couple of face-to-face encounters. So uh, Stan's always a very polite, very nice man, but he was also very firm and, and would be very candid at times. Maybe that goes back to the time he spent outside the halls of the elite in, in Indiana. Uh, that yeah. sort of makes you not be quite as worried about uh, status and, and uh, you know, just what, what people will think of you. I, I, yeah. I, think, I think that's a good thing to, to do, to get away from, get away from the, the core of, of things and the power of politics within. You know, he, he, you, you quote him from a 1977 speech, and we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this up. Uh, I'll I'll ask you to explain this statement. He said, party politics should not and cannot be our major object. What did he mean by that? Well, uh, you know, I think the person who actually expressed what he's part of what he's getting at there was his great friend, Bill Rusher, the longtime publisher of National Review. By the way, Rusher used to say, if I'm not in the room and you want to know what I think about something, ask Stan, because I'm sure he'll be right about it and have the same opinion, which they usually did. And Russia always would tell young conservatives, enthusiastic for the latest politician, politicians will always disappoint you. Uh, I mean, he even thought that, I mean, he loved Reagan, was very close to Reagan, but understood that just the nature, and Stan understood this and said it less directly than that, but at times, is, yeah, people in office, they have to maneuver with, uh, you know, political realities. And he understood that as an adult. Um, but he thought certainly for conservative intellectuals and activists uh, to tie yourself to Purely party politics was a mistake. It diluted the clarity of your own thinking. Uh, it could tie you to politicians who will, will probably have to disappoint you from time to time. And then where, what are you left with? So start and end with principle, he thought. Um, I think the bit about uh, his, um, I won't say detachment, but there are two sides to that. One is his personal unpretentiousness, <laughs> which manifested itself in his casual dress. I mean, he wore turtlenecks in the 1980s, long after they got out of fashion. Right? And, you know, he loved 7-Eleven hot dogs and talked about when he lived in Hamilton, he talked about how, uh, you know, nearby to Leesburg, he says, well, they have, a, they have a Roy Rogers fast food restaurant on each end of town. So I have variety and choices. Right? And he, endless jokes about, you know, his plain tastes and things. Um, uh, and so that was his character. Uh, but then also, you know, those years living in Indiana, uh, which was quite a hotbed of conservative activity when most people thought it just was Orange County or some Florida or somewhere, I don't know, or Texas. And he said in a very early interview, in fact, I think in 1960 or 61 to Time Magazine, he said, my views are pretty much the views of the farmer from Seymour, Indiana, you know, sort of heartland, common sense, plain spoken. And this is a guy with a Phi Beta Kappa from Yale, uh, who is one of his friends said, did anybody ever see that Phi Beta Kappa key? No, they didn't. That was, you know, that wasn't him. Yeah, yeah. The book is M. Stanton Evans, Conservative Wit, Apostle of Freedom. Stephen Hayward, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 332 2930.